We live our lives surrounded by animals, whether they're the dogs and cats that live in our homes as pets or the deer, squirrels, birds, and bees that live and thrive outside of our homes. When we wonder why those animals act as they do, we often turn to biologists or ecologists for the answers. But you may be surprised to learn that there's a lot that physics can tell us about how animals interact with the world and with each other. And that's exactly what we're about to discuss on our latest Please Explain with my guest, Mateen Durrani, editor of the magazine Physics World, and Liz Kalager, a science and environmental writer. They are the co-authors of a book called Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life. It's published by Bloomsbury, and I'm very pleased to welcome them to our show. And we also invite you, our listeners, to join in on the conversation. Have, do you, if you have any questions about the animals you see every day, you can give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wmyc.org slash or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Mateen, when we think of animal science, we usually think of biology, not physics. So what can physics tell us about how and why animals behave? Well, hi, Leonard, and thanks very much for having me on the show. Lovely to be here. Um, Yes, we commonly associate biology with animals because obviously they are animals and biologists have traditionally studied them. But um, what we do in furry logic is look at some of the many ways that um, physics can help to explain how certain animals behave. Um, So in the book, we look at things like sound and light and electricity and forces and heat and fluids. And all these things are are part of the daily battle that um, animals face, whether it's to eat, to drink to uh, mate, to avoid death, and they all use physical principles in their daily battle to survival. Now, the question is whether they actually know they're using physics, and that's perhaps something we can come on to, but certainly um, there are plenty of examples of animals using the principles of physics to survive. And of course, no one wants to die. And Liz, you write that the work of Isaac Newton rather than Albert Einstein's uh, is more important to the application of physics understanding animals. Absolutely. Newton was one of the early great scientists and um, he actually was very interested in peacocks. He also was quite an odd guy. He, when he was a child, built a mouse-powered windmill and he also caused a UFO scare by lighting some lanterns and tying them to kites. So he was quite an eccentric guy, but he actually did a lot of findings in fundamental physics. So they were already talking about UFOs in in Isaac Newton's time? I'm not sure they actually called them UFOs, but he certainly confused a lot of people. Uh, Mateen, we we often use the terms heat and temperature interchangeably. You mentioned them earlier. But as a a physicist, um, how would you define them, and why is it important to separate the two terms? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I mean, heat is something, it's a word that we use in everyday language, you know, the heat of an argument, uh, the heat of the sun. Um, But they both have quite technical meanings. And of course, heat is something that's, it's a flow. It's something that can flow from a warm region to a cold region. And temperature is more the measure of how hot something is. So there's a little, there's a distinction between the two. And how does that apply to this conversation? Well, there's one great example in the book which we talk about, um, which is um, 
where we talk about how dogs um, shake themselves dry. Now, of course, if you've, if you've ever been soaked by a dog um, which runs towards you, it's come out of a river and it's full of water and it shakes itself dry, you know, you can get a good soaking. Um, but the question is why a dog would bother to shake itself dry. And, of course, the answer is that it's a much more efficient way to get the water off itself than to just let evaporation take its course. And, of course, evaporation is very dangerous for animals because it can cool you off. If you've, ever, if you've ever been swimming in the sea on a very cold day and you come out and you're coated with water, um, you can chill off very, very quickly. And so for a dog, equally, that's very dangerous to let that um, water cool it off. So a dog rotates its backbone back and forth and the water spins off and um, calculations suggest that it's about uses about 5,000 times less energy to shake the water off than it is to just let evaporation take its course. And they can't use towels because I would love to be able to just <laughs> shake it off. But but other animals don't. Cats don't shake off water. Uh, are there any animals, uh, other animals that uh, with fur who dry themselves that way? Um, most animals, people have done studies ranging from, you know, a cat right up to a big grizzly bear. And you can kind of study the rate at which the backbone of the animal shakes. And it all kind of makes sense. The, the big bears go very slow and the smaller ones go very fast. And there are very few animals. There's a hairless guinea pig that doesn't shake itself dry. It's got no fur on itself, so it can't do that. So it's a bit like humans. We don't have hair, so we have to use towels. But most animals will follow the same principle of how they shake themselves dry. And it's a back-and-forth motion called simple harmonic motion, which crops up a lot in physics. And it's the same principle that the backbone rotates one way, comes back to the middle, goes the other way, and it's a very efficient way of shaking water off. Liz, is this based on work that David Hugh, David Hu, I guess, or Hugh, of the Georgia Institute of Technology did on the subject? Yes, that's right. And um, Hugh's also done work on mosquitoes, which um, Mateen interviewed him about. Maybe you'd like to talk about that, Mateen? Yeah, David, who is a real character, um, what he's done is to study the question of why a mosquito, which is about um, a couple of milligrams in weight, they, when, they're in the, when they're in the rain of the uh, tropics, they turns out they get hit by a raindrop about once every 30 seconds. And for us to get hit by a raindrop, that's not a big deal. But for a mosquito, weight for weight, it's like us getting hit by a five-ton truck. A raindrop typically weighs about you know, 100 times more than the mosquito. So it's a very, very nasty collision. And he managed to work out why it is that um, the mosquito doesn't die when it gets hit by a raindrop. It's interesting that he does studies on dogs and mosquitoes. You would have thought that he would have uh, stuck to animals that were a little closer to each other. Well, sorry to interrupt. Who's interesting because he also won an Ig Nobel Prize for working out that all mammals bigger than a certain size take around 21 seconds to wee. So he's a guy with a range of animal interests. And hasn't he also uh, done studies on how different animals urinate? Uh, yeah, that's right. That's what Liz is saying. With the, um, he, he worked out that each um, mammal's ranging from a cat all the way up to an elephant. Now, you'd think they would take very, very different times to urinate, but it all turns out that they all take approximately 21 seconds, plus or minus 13, 
to urinate, which is a very strange thing. But um, given that an elephant's bladder is about three and a half thousand times bigger than that of a cat, which was the smallest animal he studied. But it turns out, um, uh, you know, they take roughly the same length of time, give or take, a bit. Um, but of course, it's but no not humans. Uh, yeah, we well, I haven't. I don't know about you, but um, it's roughly roughly that length of time, because of course, for animals out in the wild, um, they're pretty defenceless when they're urinating. So you know, it's a dangerous and uh, position to be in. Um, they're defenceless at that moment, so they want to get it over with pretty quickly. My guests are Mateen Durrani and Liz, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. It's K-A-L-A-U-G-H-E-R. It could be... That's it. It's Callagher. It's Caliger. a slightly old okay. one. <laughs> That's the way I pronounced it, so I'm very uh, pleased. They are the co-authors of a book called Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life. It's published by Bloomsbury. You're listening to our Please Explain segment. We have them every Friday at the end of our show uh, here on the Leonard Lopez Show and WMYC, WMYC.org. Uh, we invite your calls. Our number here is 212-433-9692. You can also write to us on our show page at WMYC.org slash Lopez or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopez. I'm sure that uh, we, I know we all have uh, been curious about animal behavior that we have witnessed. And if there's something you would like to ask my guests about, be sure to give us a call. Tricia from Brooklyn, you're on the air. Hello. Um, I, had, I live in a neighborhood in Brooklyn that was under a pilot program for the LED streetlights, which incidentally were panned by the American Medical Association. And I've observed some things, and I wondered if you could clarify for me. I've seen, I've overheard birds chirping all night near them, and I've seen, like, I wasn't, even with my binoculars, I couldn't see what they were, but there was just hundreds of, of some sort of insect. It was during the during midsummer swarming around them. And then it disturbed me because last week I saw a cicada had hatched. And I just wonder if that could have any effect in it. And I just also wanted to add at this time of the year, if you guys could explain uh, birds, birds' mating behavior when they fly in front of cars. People, especially in, in New York, are confused by that. Well, let's get back then, to the insects because insects are also attracted. Many are attracted to light. Exactly. I don't know whether they're attracted to LEDs more than they are to incandescent bulbs or fluorescent bulbs. It uh, seems like they, they behave differently than I've ever noticed uh, noticed them. Liz, and, Mateen? Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the LED streetlights probably are giving off slightly different wavelengths of light. And that may, obviously, if you've got different insect behavior going on, you may be attracting different bat behavior. So I think at any time in an urban environment, humans are altering animal behavior. But so do we know why do we know why uh, insects so many insects are attracted flying insects anyway to light? I think they get confused and they think it's the sun so it upsets the way that they navigate. And bats you said uh, would they what are their reasons? Because well, the bats, they're, bats are mammals, or they're rodents, aren't they? Bats are mammals, and they are, most of them, or many of them, eat insects. So they'd be attracted ah. to the insects at the streetlights. They're just going to the source. What about the yes. birds that, uh, that uh, Trish was asking about? Yeah, I don't know about birds and streetlights, but I do know that in cities, um, many birds have been found to have to sing louder because there's so much noise in the city from traffic and so on. 
mm. that their normal calls can't be heard. So we are having an effect. Tricia, thank you so much for calling us. Uh, before we get to more calls, uh, can you clear up a few other things that I've been curious about? Why do dogs pant with their tongues out after they run around? Uh, and we don't see that with a lot of other animals. You don't see horses r- with their tongues out after they've run a race. That's an interesting one. I know that um, dogs do pant with their tongues out because the ev- evaporation of water from their tongues helps cool them down because turning water from a liquid into water vapor takes up energy. Mm-hmm. So it, it removes heat from them. Well, you would think that if that were the case with dogs, that that would be the case with other animals. Yes, and I don't know why. <laughs> because after I run, uh, I don't stick my tongue out un- unless I want to sass somebody. <laughs> I think that's the thing when you're studying animals. It's very difficult sometimes to, um, to to study them. You know, my background is as a physicist, and when you're stuck in a physics lab, you're in a nice room where you can turn a you know a computer up, you can turn a switch on or off. Studying animals is much harder than study uh, is much harder than doing physics, I think, and so does Liz, because there are so many variables, there are so many factors involved that it's quite difficult. In in a physics lab, you can isolate one or two things and change that and see what happens, and you can do experiments much more easily. So, kind of animal behaviour. This is something I've learned as a physicist. is very difficult to study. It's difficult, and there's not always an easy answer. Let's take another call. Elliot from Somerset, New Jersey, you're on the air. Elliot, are you there? Uh, Well, I'm from Somerset, but this is Eddie, not Elliot. Okay, Eddie. Okay. Oh, I was misinformed. It's okay. It's happened (laughs) before. Anyway, I have a question for your guests, and and either one of your guests, and it has to do with animals that gather uh, food, for later consumption, I, I, I'm interested in, in finding out if, if we know of any animal that would accumulate more than it needs. Uh, um, I, I've done a little bit of study. I started, uh, you know, uh, experimenting with squirrels and, and the way that they collect, you know, peanuts uh, and, and uh, nuts in, in general to see what they do after they, they, they bury uh, more than, than they would need for any particular time. Uh, I, and I'm always curious about how they remember where they buried them. No, no, that's not, that's not the question. The question is, what, what do they do once they, they would gather enough food for uh-huh. them to, to last them a, a specific period of time? Has anybody uh, studied this? Mateen, Liz? Um, I do you know Liz? I don't know the answer to that question. It's a good, good question. I mean, I've got plenty of stuff in my cupboard. I, I, I'm guilty of that. I'm an animal, and I'm guilty of storing lots of stuff in my uh, cookie cupboard. <laughs> yes, I would agree. I think probably, I don't know if anyone's researched it, but because the animal doesn't know how hard the winter's going to be, it's probably better off collecting more food if it can find it, then it thinks it might need, just in case it's a really long, tough winter. But and we course, did... Some, an- some animals do, uh, you know, they hibernate over winter and they really slow down their mm-hmm. bodily function, knowing that they're going to be away for six, seven months. 
Bears, and then they, for example. Their, 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 their mechanisms really slow down to conserve energy. So that's kind of the opposite of what your call is suggesting. Amy from Manhattan, you're on the air. Hi. Um, on the, the topic of uh, animals shaking, the, um, shaking water out of their fur, um, and that humans don't do that because we don't have fur, um, but usually after I wash my hands, uh, I, I, sh- I shake my hands to shake the water off, uh, some of the water off before I use a towel. And I wonder if there's any kind of parallel, or is this common in humans, or, um, or is it just me? I think most people shake the, a little bit of the water off after they will, if their hands are wet. But uh, uh, I'm, 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 I guess the question is: Is this in any way similar to what dogs are going through? And is that an um, instinctual thing? To shake themselves off. I mean, yeah. The fact that people have studied so many different animals do so many furry animals do that shaking the water off. They've all seemed to know that that's the, the best technique to get the water off as quickly as possible. Um, I mean, the experiments that people have done experiments also to work out how much water a dog shakes off. And the experiments, again, were done at Georgia Tech, and it involved firing a hose of water at a load of Labrador dogs and um, trying to work out how much water they shook off before and after. And it was quite a difficult experiment because it's not easy to weigh a dog before it's got wet and afterwards. So the researchers had to do some pretty interesting experiments which you can um, read about in the book to work out the kind of physics of how they shake the water off. And it doesn't matter whether the, the, the dog is short-haired or long-haired, whether the dog weighs uh, 10 pounds or 120 pounds? Well, the research in question was using Labradors, um, four different Labradors. I don't know if studies have gone to other dogs, but I think the principles would be fairly similar. Uh, That would be my guess. Mm -hmm. Labs tend to be uh, shorter-haired. We have to take a little break. We will be taking more calls. I have all sorts of questions for my guests as well. They are Mateen Durant and Liz Colliger who are the co-authors of a book called Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life, and it is published by the Sigma imprint of Bloomsbury. Stay with us for more. And we are back with Martin Durant, editor of the magazine Physics World, and Liz Colliger, a science and environmental writer, both uh, based in Bristol, UK. Uh, they are the co-authors of Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life, published by the Sigma imprint of Bloomsbury. And um, we are inviting your calls at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org. But before we get to some more of the calls, I have a few more questions. Uh, Don't dogs and cats drink water differently from a bowl? Yeah, that's right. That's a fantastic story in the book, Furry Logic. Um, And it was one of my favorites in the book about um, how cats drink. And it seems one of those questions that we should know the answer to. And um, the first ever study was actually by a Hollywood uh, producer made a very short film called Quicker and a Wink, which won an Oscar back in 1941. And it was a very short film using stroboscopic photography. And it showed for the first time cinema goers clips of fast moving events that were slowed down and there was about a 10 second clip of how a cat drinks but that didn't really constitute a scientific study and we had to wait for another 
60 years until a guy at MIT in Boston was watching his cat and decided to take his a high-speed camera from his lab back home and film the cat. And it turns out cats drink in a kind of three-step process. They, first of all, push their tongue out, then they rest it very gently on the surface of the water or milk, um, then they lift the tongue up, and because of surface tension, you get a column of water lifted up, and then the cat snaps its mouth around the column of fluid. And by repeating the up and down action, it gets water or fluid into its mouth. Um, but of course, dogs are very different. They're very messy drinkers and they tend to ladle the water. They stick their tongue into the water and lap it up and it's quite a messy, a messy process. So basically, cats are much more elegant. And um, All cats? Actually, are we talking about tigers and lions and leopards as well as domesticated cats? Oh, now that's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that. The study I was interested in was just using the domestic cats. Where there was some controversy involving the math that was used in that study. Yeah, it all got a bit catty, excuse (laughs) the pun, about um, the nature of this column of liquid. There was one, the guy who did the work wrote some mathematical equations about it. Then another group said, no, you've got your sums wrong. Um, You have to take into account the fact that the column of liquid isn't stationary, it's draining away. And then the first guy came back with another paper in the journal Science, which is one of the top top journals in in science. So there was this back and forth. Um, I think they all agreed the basic principles of how cats drink, which is to stick the tongue on the surface, lift it up, and snap your mouth shut. And it was more to do with the, the mathematics, but it was interesting, the person who wrote that first paper at MIT, a guy called Roman Stocker, he said all the research he's done, this one paper about cat drinking was the one that got far more attention than anything he's done. So, you know, this work on animals can um, make you famous. Now, what about uh, the way animals use their tails? Uh, Squirrels seem to use their tails differently than cats do, than dogs do. Um, are are the the squirrels uh, doing some kind of a heat transfer, or are they? Uh, <laughs> why are they using the tails the way they do? Yeah, that that's another story in the book. It's about the Californian. That's uh, why I'm asking squirrel. you about it because I yeah, know it was yeah, yeah. in the book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fascinating story. I, I didn't know this, but Californian ground schools, they have fights with um, snakes, and um, they often win. They can, um, uh, they can, they can scare off the, the snakes. And one tactic they use is to um, lift their tails in the air and pump blood into the tail so that it gets very hot. And because it's very hot, it gives off a strange infrared signal, and the, and the snakes get kind of confused by this tail, this bushy tail that's hot, so, that, so they run off. So this, that's the tactic that those squirrels use to um, confuse And speaking of snakes, snakes uh, you tell a snake story about Rick Shine from the University of Sydney in Australia. And uh, also write about uh, some snakes engaging in gender swap. 
<laughs> yeah, that, that's a brilliant story in the book. It's one that we, we actually start the book. And it's all about these snakes. These, they're called red-sided garter snakes. And they live in Canada. And, and it's very cold in the, top, the north of Manitoba. And they burrow underground for nine months of the year because it's so cold outside. They hibernate under, underneath the ground. And then in the, in, the, in the spring, they come out. And then they lie there in these giant balls of snakes in the spring sunshine and, and it kind of mystified people what on earth are these red-sided garter snakes doing lying in this giant ball thousands strong and uh, rick shine from the university of sydney he studied these snakes and it turns out what the males do um it turns out these balls of snakes only have males in it the the, the, the female snakes have disappeared the males come out and they coat themselves in a sort of sex chemical, and it fools the other snakes into thinking they're females. So the other males jump on this male snake, and it steals the heat from the other snakes. It's called kleptothermy. It steals the heat and warms up. So it's a brilliant technique for stealing heat. And Liz, you have a chapter in this book about sound and vibration, where you also write about snakes. They don't have ears, but... They seem to be able to hear in some ways. How do they perceive sound? That's right. This is amazing. They actually pick up sound waves that have traveled as vibrations through the ground rather so the, than. So that's how they catch their prey? Yep. Um, they did experiments. They um, taped over their eyes, blocked up their noses. It's a bit mean, but they were okay <laughs> afterwards. And they could still catch mice. These are snakes that are nocturnal because they live in the desert. So it's so hot during the day, most of the animals come out at night and they're able to catch mice, basically blindfolded, and they do it by detecting from which direction because they've got an ear on either side of their head. So depending where the sound comes in from, they're able to kind of triangulate and know exactly where the mouse is and then pounce, strike. Do fish do something similar? Is it different when you're underwater? Underwater, it's, sound travels a lot further because the water is much denser than air, and that means underwater is really, really noisy. Um, we talked to Sheila Patek, who's at Duke University, and she's discovered um, that lobsters, some lobsters, the California spiny lobster, actually makes a loud noise to scare predators away. But the disadvantage of making a loud noise if there's a predator coming to get you, mm -hmm. is that it tells all the other predators where you are. But luckily, because the ocean's so noisy, you can scare the predator away that's right next to you, but predators a bit further away, it gets drowned out in all the other sound. Let's take another call. Graham from Westchester, you're on the air. Yeah, hi. Enjoying the program. It's about it's time, quick. don't you think, Graham? Yeah, yeah, very quickly. Uh, dogs pant after they run because dogs can't sweat. So that's one of the ways they release heat. Other mammals, such as horses, do sweat. So they don't have to pant after they exercise. So either of you want to weigh in on this, Mateen, Liz? Well, that kind of makes sense to me. So, uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for explaining that. We didn't put that in the book. We should have. We'll do it in the next volume. There's sure to yeah. be a second volume of the book because there are so many animals we didn't include in furry logic that there are so many that um, fascinating stories that we didn't have room for. So I'll remember that one. Graham, you had another point you wanted yeah, to make? The main reason I called is I, I've worked with wolves for a number of years. 
up here in Westchester County at the Wolf Conservation Center. And one of the things that the wolves love to do is when they're, they find a scent on the ground that for some reason interests them, they will lie down and roll in it like crazy. And it's called scent rolling. And my dog does it as well. And nobody really knows for sure why they do it. One of the theories is they're picking up the scent to bring it back to the other members of the pack. The other theory is that they're doing it to disguise their own scent to make them harder to track by predators. Mm. Do you guys have any ideas? That's a really interesting one. And actually, in the story of the um, the California ground squirrels that Mateen was talking about, the ones that heat up their tails, um, mother squirrels will actually roll on the um, cast-off skins of rattlesnakes to disguise their own scent. So animals do use smell in all sorts of ways that we perhaps don't have moved away from using. Well, I've always wondered why my dog stops to smell certain things on the sidewalk um, that don't look all that interesting to me. But obviously they're picking up some information that they consider to be important. Yes, and dogs have a much more powerful sense of smell than us. So, uh, Do we have any idea world. why they, they'd be attracted to that spot on the ground and not that other spot on the ground? No, and I, I don't know. Uh, no, basically. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are also some underwater species that harness electrical currents, like the electric eel. What have scientists learned about how the electric eel puts off an electric charge. And is it really an eel, by the way? Yeah, it's a kind of fish, is it, an electric eel? But, um, I mean, people first came across, European scientists and travelers first came across these um, electric eel back in the 16th and 17th centuries. They went to the West Indies, South America, and they found these dangerous fish um, that could um, completely numb a person who put their hand next to one of these fish. And there were some horrible experiments by early travelers where they'd get um, kind of slave children, put them in a tank with a fish. And there was one story where a poor boy got completely, um, his legs were completely deformed and had to be yanked out of uh, this barrel. And it's not the sort of experiment that any scientist would do these days. But at the time, people didn't know what electricity was. Um, but those early experiments with electric eels inspired some of the early scientists like Volta back in Europe to um, understand what exactly is electricity. Um, and in fact, the first battery made by Alessandro Volta was inspired by the structures in the fish of the, the, mm. inside the electric eel. Um, but for many years, you know, people didn't know what these electric currents were or why they would have them. And even Darwin, in his Origin of Species, puts the electric eel in a kind of separate chapter at the end, saying we don't know what's going on and can't explain it. Um, but recent experiments have shown that electric eel are very, very clever in how they use high-voltage pulses to, to stun a prey and then, and then eat it. And recent experiments have actually shown that um, an electric eel can emit a, a volley of high-voltage pulses, a bit like a taser weapon. Um, so electric eels are very clever animals and use their voltage pulses in quite clever ways that we're only just now starting to realize hundreds of years after these um, animals were first discovered. Liz, elephants, you write, use seismic communication. What would that That's sound? That's right. What would that sound like? To us, or can we even hear it? 
unfortunately, we, it's such a deep sound um, that we can't really hear it in the same way. Mm. Although they do think perhaps that people like listening to the didgeridoo because that that sits on the ground and sends deep frequency vibrations into the ground that we pick up through our feet in some way. So and, that's an interesting one. But and, the elephants use sound to communicate over long distances because it can travel further through the ground than through air. So they can detect even if there's a distant rainstorm, perhaps, or they can hear if a herd, another herd is traveling far away. You talked earlier about work that had been done with mosquitoes. Um, uh, how does heat transfer work with a mosquito? Yeah, there's one fascinating story. If you've ever been bitten by a mosquito, I mean, it's always the females that will bite us. But That's because we're lubricating their, their uh, eggs, aren't we? <laughs> I think they're looking nourishing them? Well, the thing is, for the, for the mosquito itself, it's very, very dangerous. You can imagine landing on a human and drawing up blood. Um, a mosquito trip, typically triples in body weight. So it would be like us eating about 100 litres of soup in one sitting. And so the mosquito gets very, very hot very quickly, and that's dangerous. And some species of mosquito actually um, emit a blob of urine filled blood and that huge blob sticks to the body and evaporates and as it evaporates the drop cools and draws heat away from the rest of the body so it's a clever way of cooling down to avoid overheating because biting a human and sucking blood out is dangerous for the mosquito itself we have to leave it there unfortunately poor mosquitoes um, my great thanks to Mateen Durant Durrani, uh, the editor of the magazine Physics World, and Liz Colliger, science environmental writer, co-authors of Furry Logic, The Physics of Animal Life, published by Bloomsbury. It's been a real pleasure having you on today's Please Explain. Thank you for yeah, having lovely. us. Thanks, and uh, yeah, thanks for having us on.